This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. I'm Pastor Randy Moore. And I'm Pastor Andy Payton. Good to be with you again, Pastor Andy. Uh, We like to begin these sessions with sort of a soul check-in. It's a John Wesley thing. It's a thing that John Wesley used to make sure that his pastors and that their souls were being fed because he knew about the pressures of of being a pastor, especially in in that context. And so it is a a good thing to do regularly. And, And I'll start this week because it just occurred to me as I ran out to the car to get some things to come back in for the podcast. We had just left a, a staff meeting, and that always feeds my soul. Mm-hmm. We have a really, really good staff. Uh, no one's here under compulsion. They all want to be here, and they all want to contribute to what we're trying to accomplish here at the church. Wonderful and, team. Yeah, so that's that's fed my soul today. That's that's the way my soul is prospering. Well, I, d- I would definitely echo that. We have a wonderful team, and it, it does nourish us to be a part of the staff and people that want to be a part of the ministry here. Um, Two things that has all have also fed my soul this week, though, were first, uh, Wayne Perkins, one of the members of our church, uh, at our men's breakfast this past Saturday, comes up to me and says, Hey, I have this book, East Valley Jones. Uh, it's, it's his book on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want it? And I was like, Well, sure. But the funny thing about that is, Randy, um, like two weeks ago, I swear this is true. Two weeks ago, I thought to myself, I really ought to get you Stanley Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. It just happened. And, right. And I had to tell Wayne that story. I'm like, I know most people would just say this is a coincidence. I do not believe it's a coincidence. More than a coincidence that I was thinking about getting that book. And it just appears. And that's not an easy book to get. It was actually copyrighted in 1930, if you look, look in the, in the uh, opening pages there. And then the other thing that's kind of fed my soul was it's kind of surprised, but our mayor here in Evansville asked me to be on the Interfaith Commission, their, their interfaith team. So well, good for you. Very honored to be a part of that. Yes, very good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, there are no real uh, coincidences. I, I'm with you on that it, it, all the way. And I saw that conversation. Did it happen in the North Ex after service? Anyway, I saw the two of you talking, and I thought, what? Uh, something special is going on right yeah. there in that conversation. He read it, this book is from his time in seminary. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, he's in my Sunday school class. You talk about intimidation. Right. It, it's not, it, in the end of the day, it's not intimidating because, as you said, he is humble. And um, But it's just kind of nice that uh, I get to be there uh, for him because he has been there for so many people through the years. Uh, we were actually together as members of Aldersgate United Methodist Church years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, he, yeah, that's that's really, really good. So great. All right. So what we're doing here with the podcast, and we have been for these several months, is you've been going through a sermon series 
on the 25 Articles of Religion for the Methodist. And again, if you're regular listeners of the podcast, you know what that is. But just very quickly, for those of you who might not, these 25 articles, uh, they are a doctrinal standard of the United Methodist Church. And they started, with, of course, with, with John Wesley, and um, he abridged these from the 39 Articles of Religion from the Church of England, of which he was a priest until the day he died. Um, his movement was a renewal movement in the Church of England. He wasn't out to create a new denomination. Of course, when uh, Methodism came to the United States, it did become a, a denomination, and, and it did become a church. And so we've got these 25 Articles. And uh, on Sunday, you preached on Article 23, and the title of that article is Of the Rulers of the United States of America. And the description reads like this, the president, the Congress, the general assemblies, the governors, and the councils of state, as the delegates of the people, are the rulers of the United States of America, according to the division of power made to them by the Constitution of the United States and by the constitutions of their respective states. And the said states are a sovereign and a dependent nation and ought not to be subject to any foreign jurisdiction. And so we've talked about this before, but because there were 39 and now there are 25, John Wesley edited some of them. He deleted some of them and he added some of them. This is one he added for an obvious reason. It is particularly for the rulers of the United States of America, a brand new nation. Yes. And so, in, in essence, this is Wesley's blessing on this new nation when Wesley himself was not for the revolution. I was say, yeah, he wasn't 100% for the revolution, <laughs> to say it nicely. And uh, these are difficult words for him to write. And I, I think it needs to be said, he, this was not something he really wanted to do uh, at all. But he felt like there are some things that are more than important, more important than just simply politics. Ironically, more important than that, and that was the, uh, the continuation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and that's so. That's really why Methodism starts because post-revolution, uh, Wesley felt like there wasn't enough in terms of pastors and ability for people to receive the Eucharist, communion, and that kind of thing. And that's what leads him to do it. Right, and so. I just find that he, he put his own ego, that's not for the sake of the gospel, it's such a great moment in terms of what it looks like to be faithful today. Yeah, and the church in America was free from the state. The church in England wasn't free from the state. It was the state religion. Exactly. And so the fact that that transition was made. Yes. Wow. That's, yes. that's, that's, a, that's remarkable. That's yes. remarkable. Makes me ask, what do I need to lay inside? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so as has been your practice, uh, Pastor Andy, um, we've been talking about this article, you know, in detail here momentarily, but that's not your purpose in, in the sermon. In, in, in your sermons, your purpose has been to find a truth that lives within these articles and find an application for, mm -hmm. for living today. And you warned in your you warned in your uh, preview to the sermon last week that you were going to get political, mm -hmm. and uh, and even in your sermon you said. I'm going to get political, but you got to be nice to me if you want to enter the gates of heaven. So, uh, so you went there, right? And, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But I want you to, I want you to dwell a little bit about your opening line in your sermon last Sunday. Okay. Uh, which was the truth has a way of coming out. Yes, it does. 
Um, I take that from my dad, and I kind of joked around about this too a little bit. But um, in the statement, he would use the truth as a way of coming out. And so when I was a child, and he asked, for example, did I brush my teeth? Of course, as a kid, sometimes I say, well, no. Well, yeah, of course I did that. He would say, when I drew the truth as a way of coming out. And then as a teenager, he would ask me on um, Sunday morning, what did you do last night? I said, well, I just went out and played cards. But you know, with my friend's dad, he would look at me, the truth, that's the way it comes. But as an adult, really, we had our disagreements, theologically, sometimes politically, just about the way we believe the world should be organized. And he would listen to me, and then he would say that statement, the truth, that's the way it coming out. Now, he wasn't putting me down when he said that. He really wasn't. He, he basically was articulating his conviction that if something is of God, it will last. And so from there, I pivoted and I said, you know, here at Methodist Temple, our big emphasis is I see Christ in you, that, that God loves us in a Christ-like way, and therefore our lives work best in Christ-like ways. ways. And this is the truth that has a way of coming out. And, and not only is that true for us individually, it's true for us as communities, it's true for us as a nation. Our lives work best in Christ-like ways, and we can choose to go with it and flourish or go against it and perish, and really the, the choice is ours. And so really what I'm saying when I'm talking about the gospel is like, this is not it. This is not something we can just compartmentalize over here and say, well, you know, I'm going to go be a Christian over here, and it doesn't matter over there. It doesn't matter if we run ourselves as a society. That's just not true. Uh, the truth has a way of coming out, and we can go with the grain, and we can go against the grain of God's, God's design for us. And you said that when we love like God loves in a Christ-like way, life works best. Yeah. The truth has a way of coming out. I want to ask you, though, to define with a little more detail what you mean when you say Christ-like way. That's a good question. Yeah, because that's not going to mean the same thing to everyone. As I would, as I would define Christ-like, the word would be agape. When I'm talking about Christ-like living, Christ-like life, I'm talking about what the gospel uses. The gospel is used for the word love, and it's agape and love. What's that? Well, it's self-giving love. It's it's like positive orientation and service to the other. It's it's I lay my own stuff aside and I put the good of the other first. To return to the article of religion that we just talked about, right? Um, this was an expression of agape love. And Wesley said, I'm going to put my stuff aside for a moment. I'm going to do what's what's for the best of everyone here. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we're designed to, to live. That's how we're designed to love. We live, we believe as Christians in a self-giving uh, love, a God that loves us in a self-giving way. God lays God's life down for us, and as we lay our lives down for one another, uh, that's Christ's life. The definition is important. It's important to say love in a Christ-like way because there can be love by our definition in a in a selfish way, mm -hmm. right? So understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about love is important. Yes, it's um, you know, I mean, Jesus would say it in other ways. He would say like the greatest of all is the servant of all. It's a service type of love. It's that out outward outward giving of love. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you said you were going to get political, um, and you did. And it's sort of it's sort of unfortunate that we have to hesitate to get political because if we're not political, uh, we might as well really not get up, and climb up into the pulpit. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's a difference between being political and being 
partisan, and what you were not was partisan. But but you so you explained it. You sit, you sort of broke down the word and what it means. Yeah, I, I mean the word political goes back to the Greek word for city, and so just generally speaking, when we're talking about politics, we're talking about how do we organize ourselves as a community, how do we organize our life together. That's politics, strictly speaking. And uh, in the sermon, I, I kind of broke it down even more than that. And I said, there's really like three slices to the political pie. Um, politics obviously deals with our system of government, the laws and procedures that guide us and the people. Politics applies to our economics. How do we, how do we organize ourselves in terms of our, our monetary policy? And then uh, politics plays out in our culture, the convention that the uh, way we've always done it, groups of people have their ways in which they like to do things. And in a sense, that's political, too, because every group has its own little culture. And I would say nations have their own culture, too. If you've ever traveled the world, not every nation is the same. Right. As well. And so that's kind of how I broke down political living, if you will. And, and then I pivoted to the Bible. And I said, God cares about our politics. God cares. And the reason why God cares about politics is really because God cares about the suffering of people. The God of the scriptures is always concerned about the suffering of others. And, and the central narrative, of course, of the Bible, if you've ever really read the Bible, is the story of the Exodus. That, that's the moment. And uh, it's a story of a group of slaves who are led to their freedom by God's help, but with the people's cooperation, too. And I find that very important to point out. Um, God didn't just like pick up the Israelites and couldn't drop them into the promised land. They had to cooperate with God to get there. And I find that's a helpful thing to point out because we won't get to that place where God wants us to be unless we cooperate with God today as well. Well, it reminds me of something that we talked about just now in the staff meeting during, during the devotion time. And the topic made me think about an interview that I heard just yesterday with Barbara Brown Taylor, the mm -hmm. great the great Episcopal preacher, and uh, she was talking about life as a as a quest, mm -hmm. you know. So that is working together with God, and and not always having the answer right away, or ever having the answer. But it's a quest. It's it's a journey. Like the Exodus was a journey. Like, yes. To your point about working together with God, and it didn't all go well. Right. Well, and we talked about it, it took them forty years, right? They yeah. were forty years in the wilderness, and and it should not have taken them forty years. To get geographically from Egypt to where the promised land is, where you know Israel is now, that should not have taken a group in 40, 40 years. What happened? Well, if you really look at the story, they they basically circle up to the to the line, look at the promised land, and they think, no, I'm not going to go there. There's, right. there's giants there. There's, you know, the story's like there's giants there. There's, there's a, these other people there. We're not going to go there. It's, it's too difficult for us. We're not going to go there. So they circle back around. And then they, then they go a few more years and come back around. And I just, that's a powerful metaphor. That is. What we do as people, right? Mm -hmm. We have this place we know we should go. We have this place we, we know we should be moving towards. And yet we don't do it. And why don't we do it? Because we're afraid. We don't want to make the changes necessary. That's a scathing challenge to any society. What sort of giants do we need to face to get across that river? What, what do we need to do? To get to that place where we know God's called us to be, we know this is who we ought to be, who we're supposed to be, and yet we don't do it. That freedom is facing your giants. 
Yes. It really is. It is. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that story, the Exodus, is not some fairy tale from the past. It, it is true in the strictest sense. This is how groups of people work. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can see it playing out in our world today. You said that the two biggest sins in the Bible are idolatry and oppression of the poor. Mm-hmm. And when there's idolatry and when there's oppression of the poor, those systems that you've been talking about tend to crumble. Yeah, they, they, yeah you implode from within is what typically happens. Well, not typically, what inevitably happens. Um, and uh, I mean, people talk about wanting to have a biblical worldview. They talk about wanting to take the Bible seriously. They talk about they have a high view of Scripture. So let's talk about that for a moment. What's the biggest themes in all Scripture? What's the biggest things that we're warned against in Scripture? Number one, idolatry. What's that? That is setting something in stone. That is treating something that's finite as if it's infinite. That is something that we hold to so strongly that it lives above our questions. Even in the Bible, if you look at the Bible, God is questioned by the people. God's okay with our questions. And yet there's some things that happen within the lives of, of people within groups of people, that they say, well, no, this is so, they hold this so strongly that it lives above our question. We don't get, it's like, you can't go, you can't talk about that. And that's an idol. That's an idol. And so what idols do, though, is ultimately they give us permission to to hurt people. Ultimately, what happens in the Bible is people get stuck in idolatry, then they start oppressing the poor. Really, they start living in selfish ways. They begin to use their idols to rationalize their behavior for why they can do these things to other people. And that creates an unstable society because that's not how God's created us to be able. Mm-hmm. And so politics is something that deeply influenced Jesus. You made note of that uh, in your sermon. And it's rather obvious uh, that Jesus is political, that he got political, because the first thing he said, at least according to the Gospel of Mark, was repent for the kingdom of God. Is yeah. near. We're talking about a kingdom. That's the first thing he says, Mark. I think Matthew Luke too. Is that right? Okay. The synoptics, mm-hmm. not John. I mm-hmm. think John's this other animal. Yeah, okay. But, yeah. But I mean, it, right out the gate, this yeah. is why Jesus says, "Repent, for mm-hmm. the kingdom is near." And in the sermon, I point out the obvious here: it's not the family of God near, <laughs> it's not the children of God are near. It's the kingdom that's near, and the kingdom is a political term. That's the way they politically organized themselves in Jesus' time. There was King Herod, there was Emperor Caesar, those kinds of things. That's the way they organized themselves. And so here comes Jesus, and he says, hey, we're going to imagine this world in a different way. We're going to imagine the world as a god or king, and then begin to organize ourselves accordingly. And his whole life, then, from that point on, is a manifestation about what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus enacts the kingdom and how he lives and treats other people. This is what he's doing. He's teaching us about this is how life is meant to work the whole way through. And think about what Jesus is doing then in the Gospels. Um, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. I mean, another way to talk about the demonic here would be he cast out idols. He's casting out idols. And then, and then uh, the other one I would point out is like he multiplies food for people. So they can eat. He breaks down cultural boundaries that keep people from helping certain people. These are all enactments of God's kingdom. Imagine the world as a God working and living our lives accordingly. This is Jesus enact all these things. And I don't think they're idealistic suggestions. 
I think what he, he's enacting is like this is how this is how abundant living looks. This is what it looks like as as individuals and as communities. So he says, repent. For the kingdom of God is near. So it is up to us to repent. The word is metanoia, which means turn around or go in another direction. And so uh, I think I was raised this way. I think most people are raised this way, that repentance is being sorry for your sins. And and now I'm going to stop sinning, which is probably tied up in there. I'm I'm certain that it is. But it's but it's something else here is to say um, your allegiance is to. A different kingdom. Yes. You're going to switch kingdoms. You're yeah. going to switch allegiances. Well, it, to break down the word of repentance, if you go to the Greek, and it's meta, noia. Meta, big, noia, mind. Go beyond the mind that you have. <laughs> Think about that. Enlarge your mind. Enlarge your mind. Go, yeah. go beyond what you've always been taught. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you think that Rome has the final word if you're in the first century context. You think King Herod has the final word if you're in the first century context. You know, they don't have the final word. This is not it. Go beyond that mind. Mm-hmm. Change your lives. Yeah. And the invitation is, is there for us today. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to happen magically. I think it takes human responsibility to make this happen. Mm-hmm. You transitioned here, uh, continuing to build your case that Jesus was political, and once you just take a look at it, it's obvious. Once again, it's just obvious. I mean, the crucifixion itself was political. Yes. Yes, the, the crucifixion, historically speaking, um, was reserved for two groups of people. The Roman, uh, first I should say, the Romans used crucifixion. It's not the Jewish people who used crucifixion. It's always a Roman cross, first off. Um, and they used it for two reasons. Number one, for chronically defiant slaves or, or like political radicals, people that are fighting the system. Um, Jesus, I think, definitely fits in that second category in that he's fighting the system and they kill him for it. He goes into Jerusalem, which is one of the major political centers of the time. He turns over tables. Not a great life choice if you want to live very long in the first century context. And they execute him for, him, uh, for it. They put him up on the cross as a way to deter people. I mean, it's a message to everyone that was following Jesus. This is what will happen to you if you defy our authority. So, yeah, it's a political moment. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. So we, we're looking at this new way of arranging our politics, of, of arranging our government, of, of arranging our lives. And then we inevitably come to the question, is it even doable to metanoia? I mean, is it even is that even possible? And then. You started talking about the Lord's Prayer, which is a prescription uh, for for making it happen. Yeah. And you said that it's the heart of Jesus. When his disciples asked him to pray and he taught them this prayer, that's the heart of Jesus. And you even called the gospel in miniature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the sermon, I talked a little bit about, like, uh, you'll hear today people say that John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature because that's the most famous, arguably one of the most famous verses from the Christian New Testament. But I would say, I would say the Lord's Prayer is really the gospel of miniature because if you really want to know what someone believes, then listen to how they pray. They'll talk about those things that are most important and on their part. And so when the disciples ask Jesus to pray, he gives us this prayer. Essentially, what he's given us is a picture, his vision on what the world would look like if God the king. That's the Lord's Prayer. And this is the gospel. This is what it's about. And so I kind of walk it more. Walk people through line by line, petition by petition, 
very quickly because I lived a long time. Um, you started with our father. Yeah, our father. It's it's a, not my father, not Randy, not your father. It's our father, not just this group's father. This is our father. We are all in this together. We're all connected by the same God. Um, to borrow an idea from Dr. King, what what happens to one person affects all people because we're interconnected. And this becomes the basis of morality um, that we see living out from the gospel and the basis of our own morality today. And so as we get, begin to continue on in the Spirit, then we begin to see that, though, this idea of morality within the moral universe, we're in this together. And we find that the next, really, the next thing Jesus gets into then is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Again, not my will, not, not Randy's will, not the group's will, it's God's will be done. Um, and what is God's will? And we kind of covered that already, but basically God loves us, God loves us in a self-giving sort of way. And we're called to love one another in self-giving sorts of ways too. And in the sermon, uh, I think my second sermon I called this before, but I, I talked about think about your own life. Like I was just talking to a couple of friends the other day and they were like, the most joy I get is when I'm able to do something kind and good for someone else and they don't even know I did it. Right. And so, I mean, I would just point that very subtle but simple truth out. Why is that? Why is it they find such joy and happiness in it? It's by design. It's by design. And so, um, that's God's will for us. Well, let's dial in a little more. What's that look like? The Lord's Prayer, what's it look like? Well, Give us our daily bread. And, and that's as practical as practical can be today. Um, what does this world look like if God became? Everyone has enough to eat. Everyone. Everyone shares what they have in such a way that no one is left out. The context is so important because we have plenty of daily bread. We don't worry about daily bread. We're so well have, fed. We have too much bread. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I came. I mean, I didn't get into the statistics in my sermon. It's hard not to get in some statistics when it comes to the United States and our American society. Consistently, it's been said that we are five percent of the world's population, and we consume somewhere near like thirty percent of the Earth's resources. Ah. There are those. We have plenty of daily bread, but there are plenty of our neighbors don't. who don't. Yeah, they don't. And, and so, just kind of circle back around. This is not an idealistic suggestion. This is a pragmatic thing. When people don't have enough bread, they do desperate things. It creates an unstable world. The more poverty there is in the world, the more unstable the world becomes, the more wars there's going to be, the more violence there's going to be. Jesus has given us the roadmap to. I think the peace, the peace that we're all looking for. Yeah. It starts making sure people have enough to eat, uh, and then he builds from there. In the next petition, uh, which is a little bit controversial, because <laughs> we're trespass people. Are we trespassers <laughs> or are we sinners or are we debtors? Right? right. And so in the Methodist, we usually pray the Lord's Prayer in terms of trespasses. Although I will say, if you open up the a United Methodist Temple and look in the back, there are three versions of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the ecumenical version right. sends uh, the typical uh, traditional Methodist Episcopal. That's the old denomination that became the United Methodist Church as after we merged um, mm -hmm. was trespasses. And then the United Brethren, who we merged with, became United Methodist, by the way. Uh, it says debtors. 
Okay. So which one is it historically? <laughs> I believe it's debtors. Uh-huh. And the reason I say that is because um, the two, two of the three earliest Lord's prayers that we see, that we have, refers to death, mm-hmm. refers to debtors. And I would also say it fits better with the context. Jesus has just talked about daily bread. He's teaching peasant people the first century context, um, or he's talking to the peasant people the first century context, and he's referring to their needs. Um, and having enough bread was a big deal to them, but also death was a big deal to them too, because in Jesus' world, if you're in the peasant class and you fell into debt, you, you lose your farm. You could have to go into temporary slavery where you have to work out that debt. In some cases, the whole family has to go into slavery to work out that debt. And so indebtedness is a, is a big deal. Economic policy is a big deal to Jesus and the people he's preaching to. And so, again, I go back to, is this an idealistic suggestion or is there a pragmatic thing in here? And I would say there's a pragmatic statement here, and that is the more and more an individual becomes indebted, the more and more a community becomes indebted, the more and more a nation becomes indebted, the more unstable it becomes. And, and another way maybe to think about it is the more and more the gap between the wealthy and the poor stretch, the more and more unstable a society becomes. This is not a political statement. <laughs> this is a pragmatic thing. Right. Look at history. Anyone who's actually read history knows this, that when people are impoverished, when they don't have enough to eat, they're indebted, they can't, they can't make a living, they can't do what they need to do to make it. It turns money. It turns revolution. That's what happens. And so here, Jesus is going right at the heart of it. What does God's kingdom look like? Well, it looks like um, the indebtedness goes away. That, in a sense, we're, we've been equal, right. in a sense. And, and so the, the more and more we're able to get to that place, I'm not sure we'll ever get there entirely, to be fair, but the, the more and more that gap shrinks, the better off the world and society becomes. It's a dream. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But it's a pragmatic dream. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We're going to try to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes. So I'm going to ask you to hit deliver us from evil. Then you had three practical applications. So let's do that. Deliver us from evil. That's okay. the prayer uh, wraps yeah. up here. All right. Yeah. I'll go fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, evil. Uh, so how do we, how, how are we delivered by evil? Well, I go back to Israel as my example. Um, it starts with God's assistance, but our cooperation. And if we think this is going to fall out of the sky and happen magically, that's that's not going to be the case, really, I don't think. Um, uh, not that I don't see a day in which God will act in the world in such a way where the kingdom will come, but that doesn't give us permission just to sit back and do nothing at all. Jesus calls us to do something. So when we're talking about deliverance from evil, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'll also throw in a tidbit about violence real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one of the big questions that people always ask me when I say life works best in a Christ-like way. Immediately, folks will go to the extreme. They'll say, well, what if there's someone breaking in my house? Or what if there's this other nation attacking us? And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm practical in the sense, like, I understand that there's situations the person has to defend themselves. And, and I will be fair. That, in some ways, puts me at odds, at odds with Jesus's teachings. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in the podcast at some point. But with that said and acknowledged, I think that's the wrong question. I think the real question is, why is that person in your house breaking in the first place? Why is that nation rising up against the other nation in the first place? I would argue it's because we have, over a long period of time, failed to live in a Christ-like way. 
We fail to love our neighbors. We fail. And that has created a situation when that becomes uh, the reality. Um, there's another quote I remember. It's like, when you deny the voices of people, eventually they begin to scream. That screaming is as a result of unchristlike living. And so, anyway. Yeah. I just think that needs to be acknowledged when we talk about deliverance from evil. So, some practical uh, points that I made in my sermon that are after that. Um, the first thing I would say is that because we live in a moral universe, and I believe we do, it's been designed to work in a certain way, and I, and I believe it is, what's morally right is also politically right in the long run. Sure, we can do some short-term things that will fix some what we think of as short-term problems, but really what they are is they're failures to live out a Christ-like life individually as a community. And so um, if we want a long-term solution, I would suggest Christ-like living is the first place we want to go. Uh, the second thing, um, in terms of economics, it's about giving and not getting. Uh, we live in an economy today in the United States that's all about the bottom line. And uh, when we say the economy is going well, what we mean is we're generating a lot of money. And that doesn't always compute to helping out people. And I would I just say this right on the front end. Jesus' economy is about people. It's how people are treated. So his gauge for whether or not the economy is going well is not whether or not we're making a lot of money. It's how the poor are being treated. That's Jesus' gauge. And I think that should be the gauge for us in terms of the long run anyway. Because if the poor are being lifted up, if, if people are given opportunities, then that's going to lead to a more stable society in the end, I would argue, all day long. And then the last thing, it's, a, it's not about uh, domination. It's not about me imposing my way on others. It's more about diversity. And what I mean by that is um, I realize that there's some big claims being made here, but there's more than one right answer to get there. There's a diversity of right answers. And I think a lot of times uh, we get stuck in this, it's my way or the highway type of approach, especially when it comes to politics. Or religion. Or religion. <laughs> and, and we don't compromise. There's always more than one right answer. Right. Um, I didn't get to say this in the sermon, but we live in a society and culture today, politically, where uh, compromise and working with people who are different than us is seen as a weakness. In the gospel, zero sum game. It's yeah. a zero sum game. Yeah. That's not the gospel. That's not how it works. Jesus, the 12 disciples, are a diverse group of people. Politically, they're different from one another. He's got tax collectors, he's got fishermen, he's got a zealot in there. Like, these, this is a group. That's very diverse. And they have more than one way of seeing things and living into it. And uh, if we're going to enact this, we have to be able to celebrate, hey, you're not doing exactly like I would I would do it. Okay, maybe there's more one right answer. Maybe we can put those together and really do something great, too. And that's what made, I, I would argue that's what's made the United States work best when we've been able to, to do this, assimilate others and assimilate difference. So, yeah. That's as fast as I can go. Yeah, I gotta let you tell your story about Jaden. Okay. So, <laughs> it's a, it's, the year was 2020. It's a good year for a lot of good reasons. Um, it's the fall of 2020. And my oldest daughter, who's uh, she's she's 22, she'll be 23 on Groundhog's Day. <laughs> but yeah, my oldest daughter and I were driving up to uh, Mooresville to see my grandmother, who was in hospice and dying. And uh, as we're driving up 69 from Evansville to Mooresville, of course, the thing that was in the air was the presidential election at that time. You could not talk about it. It was her first presidential election she could vote in as well. 
And so we were chit-chatting back, back and forth. And, and essentially, it came down to who do you vote for, right? Like, that's the question. And it was hard. I mean, I don't want to tell her what to do. I, I want her to make her own decision. And so I gave her the typical pastoring response. I said, um, well, I try to see Christ in the person. And even more than that, I, I try to vote for the candidate that I see working out in the most Christ-like way. No one's perfect, but the one that I believe is working in that direction the most. And then vote accordingly, because I believe in the end, the truth has way come out that this is the way it's designed to roll. This is the way the world is designed to work best. And I can see that in my own life, and I've seen that. I, I believe I've seen that in our political lives with Americans. And, you know, you could just use history, too, in this. Yeah. You can see it working out in history as well. And so, yeah, um, that's how I... I answered her. <laughs> right. I'm not sure that's the answer she thought it was going to get. And you don't know how she voted, but no, no I yeah. want to be. In our society, this this is how I'll, I'll end it. In our society right now, I feel like we're so focused on the negative. We're, we're so focused on evil. And uh, the funny thing about the Lord's Prayer and the original version of the Lord's Prayer is it, is it ends with that line and delivers from evil. ends there. But the tradition that came afterwards said, no, it can't end there. You got to put an epilogue on there. They put the epilogue yeah. this little bit, this little doxology, of yeah. benediction on there, where it yeah. says, in thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that's what has the final word. It's it's perfect, really. And, and that's the invitation now. So are we going to end focusing on the evil? Mm. Or are we going to end going um, on the, what I would call the positive offensive, trying to work for Christ-like things? being defined by what we're for rather than what we're against. I, I believe the gospel is an invitation to be defined by what we're for. We're for the love of others, mm-hmm. whether that's individually or as a community, and that's what we work best. Amen. Pass the plate, and let's uh, let's go get lunch. Uh, all right, quick uh, little preview of this coming Sunday, Article 24. We're there, man. Yeah, you talked about politics last week, and this week, don't talk about money. I'm trying to get fired. <laughs> Well, we always say when we talk about money, especially during stewardship season, hey, did you know Jesus talked about money more than any other topic except the kingdom of God? John Wesley, you know, he believed in that. So Article 24 is of Christian men's goods. Uh, The description reads this way. The riches and goods of Christians are not common as touching the right title and possession of the same as some do falsely boast. Notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesseth liberally to give alms to the poor according to his ability. Yes. That's uh, that's what it says. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, what I'm going to talk about this week is I'm just going to continue to build on the subject that we've been dealing with, and that is, if life is meant to work in Christ-like ways, what does it mean to use our resources in Christ-like ways? And this is one of those things Jesus couldn't be any clearer about. We, we sidestep it, we walk around it, but it's so clear. Uh, the gospel is it's straight out for what we do with our resources and, and how they use those to, to, to promote other people's well-being. And so I'm going to talk about that and talk about what really John Wesley could teach us and, and how that actually could be enacted and lived out. Awesome. All right. I look forward to that uh, sermon, and I hope you will too, uh, listeners. You're more than welcome to join us here at the Methodist Temple on the east side of Evansville, Indiana. You're welcome to join us by virtual worship. Uh, Just know that you're invited, but we appreciate your attention here and the fact that you're listening to the podcast. It it really does mean a lot to us. We just hope that you have a great week and uh, hope to be with you again next week.
This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.